John 19, verses 28 to 30. This is our main scripture today. I'd like to look at some other scriptures, so be ready to turn in there, and we'll try to get all we can out of this this message here, this word from Jesus, by comparing it with other scriptures. Okay, here we go. John 19, verse 28. The Bible says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled it with a sponge, with, they, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Let's just pray for a moment and just ask God to just touch us and help us with His Word today. Okay, let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful for being your people, being your family. Thank you for our friends and guests here as well. And um, we, uh, I'm glad that we're, we're all able to, to carve out some time this morning. And um, we just want to give you our attention. And uh, not just our offering was an offering, but our attention, Lord to be an offering to you, and, and I pray that um, you'd be pleased with our attention and, and you'd bless it. And, um, and then your, your words, uh, teach us, God, and move us forward and help us to perceive you more clearly as our Savior, and then perceive how we can live for you uh, in an in a, uh, honoring way. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's just get this out of the way right now, okay? Everybody is getting a bottle of water. Take one. All right, guys, pass them out. You're getting a bottle of water. If you don't want to drink it, that's fine, but you're going to have it in case you get thirsty. I used to have a hard time when pastors would preach about being thirsty, and I'm sitting there with no water, and they're talking about being, or they would say, I'm thirsty, and they go, good, 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 and I'm sitting there going, you just made me thirsty. So, all right, everybody's getting a bottle of water. I need one too, Jimmy. Okay, let's just get this out of the way. Go ahead and take a sip. Crack it open now so it won't crack later. You're like, you're going to hear me crack it open. There you go. Crack it open. All right. And you're welcome to drink anytime that water while we're in our message about Jesus saying, I thirst. Now, we could have left it like this without water so we can feel it more. But we didn't. So let's talk about the, again, um, what have we been preaching on? We're preaching on the seven sayings of Jesus. You don't see them all in one book. You take the four books of the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you, you get the whole picture together. And so we have uh, these cries, these statements. Well, let's go to the next frame here. My clicker's not working. <clears throat> Again, the first thing Jesus said is, Father, forgive them. As soon, he was, as soon as he was set into that final point of mistreatment, um, well, I guess he was still mistreated, but as soon as he was set up on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. And then he says to a man who was changed his mind and repented on his deathbed, Jesus honored him with granting him eternal life. 
He basically said, uh, Lord, remember me, which is his way of saying, save me. And the Lord said, you got it. Today we're going to be in heaven. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then his mother visited in John, and he delegates to John the responsibility of taking care of his mother as he was going to die. And even when he came back from the dead, John still had that responsibility uh, through those days and through the days after his ascension. And then a uh, very, very uh, strong moment and uh, one of the most intense things I've ever studied into is when that middle cry uh, that happened after three hours of silence and there was no more mocking from 12 to 3 o'clock. There was no more mocking of men and it, was, uh, it went supernaturally dark. There was no eclipse. Uh, a moon would have been on the other side of the earth shining full on the darker side of the earth at that time and God just darkened the sun. The sun hid its face and some say that represented the Father turning from sin, the, turning his face away from sin while the Son is atoning for it. And Jesus in that moment of that three hours says, my God, at the end, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he's fulfilling a scripture and he's showing the, um, the, the fact that he is bearing alone our sin. And it's just an intense moment. And now we're going to look at I thirst, and then there'll be two more that he says that we'll look at another time. And so the simple thing, I thirst. Um, well, look what the Bible says. Let's just go ahead and study this here a little bit together. And notice the first words there, uh, verse um, 28. What does the Bible say? After this, after this. So Jesus is about to say, I thirst. He says it after some things. Okay, so after what? Well, let's go back to maybe the point where we think he might have been thirst, may have been started to be triggered. He had a meal. He had Passover meal and then the Lord's table, and I know they supped then. And then he, they sang a hymn, and then they went out with the disciples for a little while. This is like 18 to, this is about 18 hours before this moment here. 18 hours before that, this is what was happening. You know, the, the Last Supper. And then after the Last Supper, he went out with the disciples. And then he, then he detached himself with just a few of the disciples. And he told them to pray. And then he detached himself further. And what was he doing then in the garden? He was praying. So here he is. He'd done a lot of speaking. And now he's praying. And not only was he praying, it was intense praying. And it, as it were, he sweat as it were, great drops of blood. Now, I think it was literally blood and probably water set with that. But even if it's just blood, that's losing water. Um, when I was bleeding a few months back with my head in my infamous moment, I, was, I needed water because I was losing it. Plus, I was getting faint, but I could relate with that. I was like, I need some water. I'm kind of thirsty. And uh, you feel it instantly. When you're bleeding, you feel like, okay, I'm losing water. Jesus already started bleeding in the garden. And then, of course, he goes back to the disciples, and they're together. And um, he says, get ready, guys. The person who's betraying me is right here. Sure enough, Judas shows up with the, all the, the officers there and, and takes them and arrests them. From that moment on, I don't know if Jesus could go to a water fountain. I don't know if Jesus was offered anything except right before the cross, which we'll see in a minute. So 
he's already losing water some 12 to 18 hours before this cry. And then he's taken and he's passed around from this hall to that hall and back and forth and made fun of and mocked and flogged. So he's losing more blood. Okay? And now it, the, it goes from nine, probably 9 o'clock at night, perhaps reasonably to say his apprehension, maybe midnight, somewhere in there. He's apprehended. He goes through all the midnight hour, past midnight hour into the early morning. And, you know, there was a full moon out. They could see a little bit more and and passed around. Uh, But by the time the morning came, you know, Pilate had been dealing with him and gave the decree sometime in the early morning um, to have him crucified. And then he's crucified. And before he's crucified, they actually offered him before it says in a couple of the other Gospels, they offered him uh, wine mingled with gall. And what that was, the most reasonable way to interpret that was they were actually offering him a little sedative, a little bit of a, a something to dull. In fact, it may have actually been for the guys nailing him because it's easier to nail somebody who's not writhing in pain, screaming in your ear. They offered it to him before he was nailed. So if they can stupefy him, thinking he's just like some other normal guy, stupefy him a little bit. He's like, okay, boo, oh, oh. He, and he refused it when he tasted it. He refused the concoction that would have had an anesthetic effect on him. That's not a doctrine saying you shouldn't have anesthesia. I'm not saying that because God put Adam to sleep when he did surgery on him. It's showing that Jesus was going to be wide awake for every last bit of this, fully as uh, alert as possible, receiving without a, any kind of fog, the nail here, the nail there, the nails in the feet, fully with uh, full, the full strength of the pain coming on him. And for the next six hours, he would be alert. So he didn't take any of that fluid then. So then he is crucified, and now he's bleeding more, and he's struggling to breathe. And, of course, he'd already been flogged. His back's probably, perhaps his blood may be coagulating or something. I don't know, but there's all kinds of medical things happen to him, lacerations and cuts and punctures and all kinds of things like that. And so there's all these things happening in his body. And, of course, the most important thing is when he was bearing for that divine moment and eternal justice, bearing our sins and his body on the tree, and it being accepted of the Father. So when it says after this, it's after all that, and after the mocking, and after the, they'd, they'd split up his garments and gambled them away with the soldiers, and, and after they put a sign over him with a mocking title saying, this is your king, king of the Jews, and after mom had come with John and he spoke to them and and uh, he'd already spoken to the, uh, or he would speak to the, the thief as well. And after the three hours of darkness, and now, after it, probably 12 to 18 hours, he says, I'm thirsty. But notice, the scripture tells us things that Jesus said. That's why we're studying it. So it must be important what Jesus says. You ever had somebody like, you know, sometimes somebody says something, you're like, oh, I want to hear what this guy has to say. And you're listening, you're like, he didn't say anything. That was a waste of time. You know? You ever, like, people on the radio sometimes, like, what does this guy have to say? And you're like, after a while, you're going, this guy has nothing to say. I just wasted my time. 
Even what Jesus said in his moments of weakness, his greatest moment of weakness, is valuable. So here we're going to ask ourselves, what is significant about him saying this? What's significant about it? So the first thing we'll see, this shows a prophecy. Okay? Jesus said, or the scripture says, let's go to our Bible. Why is it significant that he said, I thirst? Well, the Bible tells you the first part. After this, after all that we just described, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And so he had accomplished, there was, by the way, there's more prophecies for Jesus to fulfill. But for this cross incident, this atonement issue, this, all this stuff up to this point, he's fulfilled the scriptures of having disciples and one of them betraying him, that was fulfilled. And the other ones that didn't betray him got scared and fled, the, the, the sheep scattered. He was fulfilling those scriptures. He was fulfilling the scriptures of saying that many bulls have, have, have come against him and that he was being bullied by leaders. He was fulfilling that scripture. He was fulfilling the scripture that, that said there was be, he would be killed between transgressors, other criminals, to make it look like he was one. That was being fulfilled. And all these things were being fulfilled. But now, right at the end, he knows there's one more scripture that needs to be fulfilled. Where it says, at least twice in the Old Testament through David, I thirst. And in the context, you're like, this isn't just David saying this. This is a Messiah crying. And so he knows there's one more scripture. And so he could have fulfilled that one earlier. I thirst and took it at the cross before the, uh, being crucified. Or said, I thirst and take it halfway through. He waits to cry that at the end. I thirst. Showing uh, intention through this whole thing and buying control of the situation. I would have said I thirst like six. I would have said I thirst 12 hours before this. Once they handcuffed me, hey, I'm kind of thirsty in the garden. He holds it back, not that he's not human, because we're going to get into that point. He says, I thirst. Let's look at the Bible verses. Go to Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. 15. These are the scriptures that say it. Um, <clears throat> we'll first do Psalm 22. And we read some of it last week, and I think maybe the week before, um, about Messiah here being told about through the Song of David. All these scriptures, the first one, My God, my God, who has self forsaken me. Then the other ones say, I'm poured out like water, my bones are out of joint. And then verse 15, that's what I want you to read. Verse 15, my strength, verse 15 of chapter 22, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, or a dry pot, pottery. That's my strength, it's all dried up. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast, and thou hast brought me to the dust of death. I was talking to a Christian lately, and they said, I've been waking up in the morning with a dry mouth. And it was like Velcro stuck to the top of my mouth, cleaving to the top of my mouth. That's what the psalmist predicts Jesus' scenario was like. Look at uh, chapter 69. Chapter 69, verse 21. 
They gave me also gall for my meat. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Vinegar to drink. They think vinegar is kind of like a sour wine here. So they think it is. What is Jesus doing? He's fulfilling the prophecies. Isn't it good to see? You, you, let's just stop a second. It's good for you and I to, to not neglect the fact that there's prophecies in the Bible. And not all, but a good number of them have, have been fulfilled. And to see how and when they're fulfilled. And to take satisfaction in that. Yeah, that's, 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 re, that's, that's strengthening my faith. That's strengthening my fact that I'm following a, an incorruptible book, a sure word of prophecy. You know, Daniel spoke, in the book of Daniel, he spoke about, he didn't say it in these terms, but you could see uh, Alexander the Great, Cleopatra. Uh, he spoke of Jesus' um, uh, coming with, in his suffering. He spoke of other world kingdoms coming. I mean, and then you see some of Daniel's prophecies. If you just dig, you'll say, oh, yeah, it is. It's fulfilled there. And here, even in this moment of on the cross, Jesus knows. He's, he's up there, and he knows, wait, there's another scripture. And he says, it, I thirst. And they respond. But it's interesting. They respond, and they don't bring him water. He didn't say what he was going to drink. Of course, they probably wouldn't. I don't know. They brought him the vinegar, but that's what the Bible says they would do. And he cries for us. So you see, a prophecy is seen. This is see, Jesus saying, I thirst is significant because it shows he's fulfilling prophecy, among other things. How many religious leaders can we actually see? Like, you know, they really were fulfilling prophecy, let alone multiple prophecies. Jesus, our Savior, our God, fulfilled multiple prophecies. He's not some random religious leader that appeared on the stage of humanity among many other legitimate ones. No, He surpasses them all. It's proven to be the Son of God, God in the flesh. This prophecy is seen. Number two, we see, and this is beautiful, and we'll spend a little more time on this, humanity is seen. His humanity is seen. I don't think He's lying. Uh, <clears throat> I thirst. I got to fulfill this prophecy. I don't really thirst. No, I think he's telling the truth. He wouldn't lie. He's human. That's a blessing. He says, "I thirst." It's showing his humanity. I want you to think about this. <laughs> we have a God who became a man and suffered not unlike us, but like us, and in most of us, much more. All of, all of us, much more. We have a God who suffered. What religion has a God like our God who has suffered? They have some other concept. They have some other deity. They have some other thing. But we have a God who suffered. Jesus was very God of very gods. God of very God. There's only one God. He was all God. He was 100% God and He was 100% man. He became a real human being 
what, what God can identify so much with us? If you scan the religions of the world, what God can identify with us like the Lord Jesus Christ? He became a man, a real human, so that he could identify with all of our human sufferings. Isn't that good? He could identify with all our human sufferings. Okay, here he is. Here he is up on the cross. He made trees. He, God created all things by Christ Jesus. By Him were all things created, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So this tree, which they milled out or whatever, carved out to make a cross, came from the trees He originally made in Genesis. He made it. He was crucified on the tree that He made. The, the nails, assuming they're iron, were made of the ore that he laced in those mountains. He put the ore in the mountains. He put the trees on the earth. And now he's on one of those trees and those, the iron ore is made into, forged into steel or, or, or iron, whatever, to nail him. And he's going to be drinking the fluids that he made what, coming from whatever common that the vinegar was compiled with, perhaps just grapes. He made all that. And so he made the trees, he made the iron, he made the fluids, and then he made men, you and I, watch this. With, he made us with the capacity to need to go like this. He made me to need to do that. He made me to need to go, oh, I need to drink water. He made me with the ability or with the, the trigger to say, I need to rehydrate, I need to hydrate, I need to hydrate. And so he made all those things, and now he's entering into my world, being, enduring all those things, and among those things, he entered into a body that needed to thirst, and not just that, a dehydration he's under, thirsting. He is experiencing humanity. Let's not forget, I know I said this last week, please don't just take this stuff for granted. This is worth pondering forever. Jesus hungered, and we hunger. We, we hunger, and He hungered. We thirst, and He thirsted. Jesus got tired. Again, He confined Himself to human body without sin. He got tired, and we get tired. Remember one of the times when He laying in the bottom of a ship? I mean, He was asleep, buddy. And the disciples are like, wait, there's a storm, Master. Don't you care that we perish? And He wakes up. He ah, rebukes the wind and the sea. And like, ah, oh, you guys have little faith. He was sleeping, though. He was sound asleep. He got tired. Jesus had grief. Jesus had sorrow. We have that. We get stressed. It looks like Jesus had a stress. Say so if you're sweating blood in the garden. We get lonely. I, I suppose Jesus was lonely. Being in the wilderness 40 days, 40 nights fasting. Jesus, some people, we've endured betrayal. Somebody totally turned their back on us. He was betrayed. Some people have been abused. Jesus was abused. Some people are misunderstood. They just don't understand me. I wish this person understood me. 
isn't it? You watched in the Gospels. It's not just in this crucifixion week. You watch throughout the life of Christ. There's moments where like, they don't get it. They're misunderstanding him. You just want to jump in the story and say, no, do what he means is. And you want to like fix it, but he can't because there was times where Jesus was misunderstood. And of course, there was times where they purposely twisted what he said, even if they did understand it. But there's times where he legitimately misunderstood. He was legitimately misunderstood. So this, so that it could be to where if you say to me, and you can say this to me, Pastor or Mike, you don't know what it's like to, and fill in the blank, you don't know what it feels like to, and for perhaps uh, several of those things that you would say, it would be true. But it can never be true. You can never say that to Jesus. Think about this. We can never say to Jesus, you don't know what it's like to can't say that to him. Let's look at some Bible verses in Hebrews. I've mentioned them, I think, last week, but let's look at some Bible verses in Hebrews again. Um, Hebrews 2.10. And we'll uh, highlight a few in this chapter and then go to chapter 4. Hebrews 2.10, describing uh, Jesus becoming a man, the God, the Son, becoming a man. And it says that it was necessary for him to enter into our world to relate with our issues. Chapter 2, verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's a description saying it was necessary for Jesus to be made. He could have been a captain of us and he could have been he was our captain, but he could have led us and did all kinds of things, but it makes it perfect when he comes into our world and he suffers with us. He suffers like we do and then says, I know where you've been. I know what it's like. And he, and he can lead us forward. Isn't it, here's what I'm saying. Isn't it easier to be led by somebody who has the experience? Huh? Some, it's hard when you have a person who's your manager and you're like, I know more than this guy. It's a little harder to deal with that. But when you have a manager who's been in the trenches and been through the stuff, you're like, that's my captain. He's been ahead of me. And that's what it's saying Jesus is. Make the captain of their salvation um, perfect through sufferings. Let's keep reading in this chapter 14, verse 14 through 18. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. It's talking about the creating God's created people. The children are what? Partakers of flesh and blood. That's what we live in. He also likewise himself likewise took he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through all through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Notice verse 16. Notice it. For verily, certainly he took not on him this nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. It's saying Jesus didn't just go, oh, God's son's coming in. He's going to be the angel floating around, has the halo over his head. You can tell he's different, right? No, he looked just like the, a Jewish man and a man indeed. He, didn't, he wasn't an angel. Verse 17, 
Wherefore, it, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He's able in that Jesus endured testing, tempting. He endured both those aspects. He is able to aid those that are tested and that are tempted. He's able to aid me because in my infirmity, in my tests, in the problems that collapse upon me, because he's had problems collapse on him. He's able to aid me in that. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 16. I love these verses. We've quoted them, but let's look at them again. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse, let's do 14, 15, 16. Chapter 4, verse 14, 15, and 16. And you should be happy about these verses. Somebody ought to be happy today. Is anybody happy? Anybody in church? Okay, well, let's look at verse 14 and 15 and 16. And uh, this ought to make you more happier. Seeing then that we have a great high priest... Not the Jewish one, that is, the, the, we do have a Jewish one, but not the, the regular guy. It's Jesus that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, because that's the kind of high priest I have, who's connected, who's in touch, who's not... It, isolated in an ivory tower as some, uh, some pampered clergy. No. He says he was in all points touched and tempted and feels our infirmities and tempted yet without sin. Verse 16, Therefore let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is anybody in church today? Amen. Amen. That's good stuff. That is good. Of all religions, we have a God who suffered because he became a man. He can all, I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say all this, but I'm going to say a little bit of this. God, I was thinking this from years back. I'm like, this is awesome. Jesus can relate with everybody. Not just the suffering part. Not just, but even just the stations of life. People, Jesus can relate with all kinds of positions in life. Think about this. And, I was thinking and I wrote this down. To the doctor, he shows that he's the great physician. To the kindergarten teacher, he's the Alpha and Omega. To the writer, he's the author and finisher of our, of our faith and the Word. To the astrologer, he's the bright and morning star. To the psychologist, he's the wonderful counselor. To the rancher, he's the chief shepherd. To the president, we see in the Bible, he's the king of kings. To the dictator, we see he's the lord of lords. To the politician, he's Christ, the true anointed one. For the ambassador, we can tell, Jesus, tell him that Jesus is the prince of peace. To the farmer, he should know that Jesus is the true vine. To the poor, 
They should know that Jesus is the gift of God. To the builder, he should know Jesus is the cornerstone. These are things that are described of him in Scripture. I'm not making this up. To the carpenter, he should know that Jesus is the door. To the paver, that Jesus is the way. To the investigator, that Jesus is the truth. To the biologist, that Jesus is the life. To the inventor, that Jesus is the creator. The lawyer should know that Jesus is the advocate. The painter should know that Jesus is the express image of the Father. The geologist should know that he's the rock of ages. The botanist should know he's the rose of Sharon. The arborist should know he's the branch and lily of the valley. The baker should know he's the bread of life. The water delivery man should know he's the water of life. The electrician should know he's the light of the world. The waiter should know he's the righteous servant. The mortician should know he's the resurrection and life. There's more. Isn't that, isn't that me? I think I'm going to read it all. He can re- isn't that neat? That's really true. That's not, ooh, nice fancy reading today. That's true. That's true. That's him. He, his humanity, we, he can, I love this. This is this one thing. He's thirsty. We're like, yeah. He wasn't just thirsty. He was hungry and all these things. And he was really a man who thirsted. He was a really a man who got tired and, and got hungry and felt grief and felt, and let the grief be on him and felt sorrow and let the sorrow be on him and didn't numb it or any of that stuff. And in and, and his roles in, in his earthly life and now in his life uh, exalted, he, he relates in these other ways to us. I'm so glad. What a Savior. What a God we have. So his thirst is showing us a glimpse of this prophecy of his humanity. And then it shows us this last point of his substitutionary work. When he said, I thirst, and it was fulfilling prophecy, and he obviously did thirst, get out his last two statements, wet his whistle. And then we see that's fulfilling something. There's one particular word that's key in Scripture when describing the sufferings of Christ and the cross, there's a particular word we should pay attention to is for, F-O-R, suffered for us. He was forsaken for me. He was thirsty so that I don't have to be thirsty forever. Look what it says in Revelation. Go to Revelation 7. And a description of some people who just got uh, right into heaven, and it's describing their state and what they're dealing with. And it says in Revelation chapter 7, uh, verse 16 and 17, about people who just got in there, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them that has burned them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. It's saying that these people who were, I think it's describing a host of people during the tribulation time who were martyred and and went right up to heaven and were with the Lord. Probably during this tribulation time, they were because they didn't receive the mark of the beast. They were neglected and they didn't have as much food as they would like and they went thirsty at times and they were beaten. Perhaps they had to endure the pain of the sun on them and they, they had died a martyr's death and they're up there and the Bible says, yep, they're here and they're going to be thirsty anymore, not going to be hungry anymore, not any of that because they've trusted in this Lamb of God who's now saved them from the, the, the pains of this life and and all that, and, and ultimately from going to hell. 
He's going to lead them, it says. He has them, he has them in his possession. Lead them unto the fountains of living waters. That would be beautiful. I don't even know all about that, but that's going to be cool. I like water. I like water. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. But in contrast, the uncomfortable passage. Let's go to the uncomfortable passage of Luke 16. I think um, Adam made a quick reference to it this morning. Luke 16, here's a, here is a thirst, and it's no joke. Luke 16, here's a man, uh, a rich man, not that riches was a problem in the sense of it's wrong in and of itself, but this man never chose to um, accept the Lord as his Savior, and his rich man was in hell. There was a poor man who trusted the Lord who was in heaven, and it says in Luke chapter 16, you know these words, but let's, just, let's deal with them. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried, verse 22, into Abraham's bosom. That was a place of paradise where there was relief. And the rich man died, also died and was buried. And he died and was buried. And yet there's a soulless part of him, verse 23. In hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, his soulless body. Seeing and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, verse 24, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And he doesn't get any relief. This is horrifying. This is horrifying. The, the, the poor man died, went to heaven. The rich man died, went to hell because he was saved and he wasn't. And he's like, hey! He's able to somehow see Abraham. There's this chasm between them. He's able to communicate. Send somebody to give me some water. He just wants a drop of water. Whoa! That's all he wanted. He still wants it right now. And didn't get it. But Jesus, when he was up on the cross, everything he did, punctured, crucified, pierced, flogged, all that, all those things, he's enduring my punishment. He thirsts and he bears and all these things for me so that I won't have to be forsaken. He was forsaken for me. So I don't have to thirst forever. He thirsted for me. So that I don't have to bear my sins. He bore them for me. This is showing his substitutionary work. He was my substitute. But he was drinking. Chapter 18, look at John chapter 18. There was something else he was drinking, and he was about done with it. John 18, it's a reference to an incident, and um, it says in John 18, verse 11, it says, um, Peter wanted to stop this whole thing of Jesus getting taken and crucified he wanted to stop the moment when Jesus was getting arrested so John 18 11, then said Jesus unto Peter put up thy sword into the sheath the cup which my father hath given me shall I not drink it there's three cups in this whole scenario, this scenario. there's a, the cup that was in the garden there was the cup before he was to be pinned to the cross in a sense, there's a cup there up on the cross that he, we see him partake of, of this rod, this hyssop rod put on a sponge, and he takes of it. 
before he passes. This would be perhaps a cup of, of, of mercy. The second one that we mentioned before the cross would be a cup of charity that he didn't take. But this first cup that he mentions in the garden, and now he's telling Peter, I'm going to take this cup. It's a cup of iniquity. It's a cup of God's wrath. It's a cup that represented this whole cross experience. I'm just saying, study the whole. Remember, he's in, oh, this cup, Lord, that represented drinking down the wrath of God for us that would otherwise come on our sin. Drink it down. And Jesus is drinking something. It's just the cup of God's wrath. And he drank it dry. Every last bit. Wow, that, that's what's happening. It's substitutionary work. I just want us to think about it. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus' thirst and his humanity and his fulfilling prophecy and substitute. And then let's just close with this last thought, twofold thought, that let's thirst for him. Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. John 7, and then we'll go to Psalm. We should thirst for, for the Lord. We should thirst for Jesus. First way, a person needs to thirst for Him as their Savior. A person needs to be thirsty to say, I want that. I want Him. I want to be, I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want that cup. I want that water of life. That's what He is. And so Jesus says something here at one of these feasts in John 7, verse 37 and 38. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Look at chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, a couple pages to your left. The famous incident at noontime when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman and offers her water of life. Chapter 4, um, and it says, verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, referring to a real well, shall thirst again. Isn't that true? You drink water, you're going to thirst again. But whosoever shall drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Once I get saved, I have the water of life. I don't need that. Third, I don't need to attain him as salvation again. I have it. It's all in me. And I'm saved. I need to, I need to now thirst. If you're not, if a person's not a Christian, they need to say, I want him. I thirst for God because I realize I'm dry and my sins have got me in trouble and I need him to hydrate me for eternity. A person won't ever think that way if they don't ever think about their sin in the first place. And it's our job to teach people, hey, our sin's a problem. And Jesus is a solution. And so that Jesus, when we accept Him as our Savior, it's like we have eternal water. We have the water of life in us. Now let's go. We should thirst for salvation, but for communion. This is our last part here. Chapter 42 of Psalm. Chapter 42 of Psalm. Um, we have a song that we could sing, a little chorus, as the deer panteth. Here it says the heart. It's referring to a deer. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. And here's what the psalmist says. As the heart panteth after 
the water brook. So panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? What is he talking about? Well, there's the thirst of, I want God's salvation. And now something different is, I just want to be with God. I want to be with God. Who do you want to be with in life? I don't think he's even talking about just appearing before God in the sense of just, I'll go to heaven. That's a thirst I think most people have. I want to be with God. But it's like, when do, I want to be with God. The heart, the, the deer is like, where's the water? Have you ever run in the, you know, go hiking? Like, well, you take your son. You see this here, son? This is a deer trail going to the creek right there, you see? And watch out for the deer droppings, you know, right? And but the, 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 you know, you go to a, a place where there's a creek somewhere and there's a few hills, and if you step back by the creek and you look at, okay, I can see a little, uh, you know, a little game trail. All right, there it is. He must go right here, and then they go like this, and then they drink. You know, they're, 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 they're thirsty for the water brook. And so I, I thirst for God. Do you thirst for God? Again, just as a, as a saved person, Lord, I, I thirst for you. When am I going to be with God? I know God's always with you, but when am I going to just commune with God as a heart longeth? Do I long for God? Do I long for Him? You know, we're best known by our appetites, aren't we? I think we're best known by our appetites, and we need to have an appetite for God. So there it is. Jesus said, I thirst. Are you thirsty for Him? Let's pray together.